our sin is great, but your grace is so much greater. And how thankful we are today that we can experience that grace that is lavished upon us. Father, as we open up your word, would you speak to us from it as we continue to give you praise, honor, and glory for who you are and for what you've done. Use your Holy Spirit now to continue to challenge us and to change us, to convict us where conviction's needed, and help us to leave this building today more like Jesus than when we walked in. And as you do that work, we will be careful to give you the honor, praise, and glory for you alone, this God of grace, are worthy of it. And all God's people said, amen and amen. And as you take your Bible, open with me to the book of Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, and we're going to uh, resume our series in the book of Esther after taking a, a couple of weeks that I wasn't here and uh, had uh, good, good people preaching and good, good sermons preached in my absence. But uh, we want to return now to uh, our series from Esther, and we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 4, and today we're going to focus on how Jesus is a better mediator, Jesus being a better mediator. Now, we are all familiar with what it feels like to make progress. You think about your kid. When a kid learns to walk, they, they don't come out of the womb walking and strutting, do they? they? They start off by crawling, and then they progress on to walking. When you want to teach someone how to drive, you, you probably are best suited to find a parking lot somewhere, and, and our parking lot's a good one to start in, as opposed to going to downtown Atlanta on the interstate and saying, here, have at it, learn how to drive. You, you want to do things that will allow someone to make some progress. Progress is moving from where you are toward a, a goal. It's taking one step further to a higher place or to a further place. And today in the book of Esther, specifically Esther chapter 4, we're going to see some people take some progress. This chapter is like a, a hinge upon which the whole narrative of Esther swings. Esther and Mordecai are not perfect people, but we're going to see them in chapter 4 start to make some progress. They're going to move toward a further point, a deeper point in their relationship with God. Up until this point in the book of Esther, we have been introduced to four major characters. We've been introduced to a man by the name of Erxes, or Ahasuerus is his uh, Persian name. We've been introduced to Esther, to a man named Mordecai and to a man named Haman. Now, two of those four people don't make any progress whatsoever at any point. They are not God's people, and they do not change. That is Haman and Erxes. But the other two of those people, Esther and Mordecai, they are God's people, and they start to make progress. It takes them a little while, but they start going forward spiritually in 
chapter 4. Now, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Esther, let me give you just a couple of minutes of a real quick review and recap of how we get to chapter 4. There's a king named Xerxes who rules over a kingdom called Persia. He sits on a throne and he rules like a god. Xerxes becomes upset when his wife Vashti will not parade herself in front of a bunch of drunken guys at a party that the king hosted. And so in effect, he puts her away. He divorces her. A few years later, they have a competition to see who will be the next queen of Persia. It was kind of like bachelorette before there was a bachelorette. They were kind of trying to figure out who would be the next queen upon the scene. Hundreds of women are involved in this contest. One of those women goes by the name of Esther. Esther is a Jewish young lady, but she's not necessarily walking closely with God as the narrative begins. She is an orphan. She was adopted by an older cousin by the name of Mordecai, who was a father figure for her. Mordecai didn't start off that well as either. He didn't start off as a brave follower of Jehovah. In fact, when we first are introduced to Mordecai, even though he is one of God's people, no one else knows that he's one of God's people. He doesn't publicly identify as one of God's people. In fact, he works for the pagan king. He works for the pagan government. Well, Xerxes, the king, has a right-hand man whose name is Haman. Haman is an egomaniac, a narcissistic guy who loves power, who loves glory, who loves public recognition. And a decree is issued by King Xerxes that everyone is to bow down to his right-hand man, Haman. Everyone does this except for one man, Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. He wants to bow down to no one like Haman in his life. And this goes on for quite some time until Haman has had enough. Haman plots and he makes a plan to have Mordecai killed as well as all of Mordecai's people. All the Jews in this land at this time would be killed under this decree. That brings us to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, I want us to work through the chapter, specifically noticing the progress that Mordecai makes and that Esther makes. See, the chapter opens by showing us that Mordecai makes a little bit of progress. It opens in verse 1 by saying that when Mordecai learned all that had been done, that is the plan to kill all the people, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and he cried aloud and bitter cry. Don't miss what's happening. This is public mourning and weeping. He went out into the city. He is now publicly identifying himself with God's people. Previously, before chapter 4, he was privately counted among God's people. Mordecai has now gone from being silent to speaking. He's now gone from being passive to being active. He's making progress. Verse 2 tells us that he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. 
And in every province, whether the king's command, uh, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So as this decree went out that all of God's people would be killed, all the Jews would be killed, this response was made. Now, when something bad happened in the Old Testament, they let you know about it. They, they put on the, the sackcloth, they, they, they changed their clothes, they put ashes on their head, they would go out in public, they would scream, they would cry, and they would wail. Notice that Mordecai's faith gets activated in his mourning and weeping. You see, faith is an internal conviction that leads to an external action. Faith is not just what you believe. Faith is how you behave. You can tell whether a person has faith by what they do, not by what they say. For example, let's say there's a, a father teaching his son how to swim. And the father is in the pool in the deep end, and he tells the son, jump on in, I'll catch you, trust me, just jump. Now, how do you know if that son has faith in his father? Not if he goes, well, let me pontificate as to what the meaning of faith is. The faith is, that's not how you know he has faith. You know he has faith by what? If he jumps. <coughs> faith is seen in action. Faith is demonstrated in action. And Mordecai is now making some progress. Nobody knew he was a believer, and now everyone knows that he's a believer. He was silent, now he's speaking, he's passive, now he's active. Let me ask you a question. Where have you been passive and you need to get active? Well, I know I need to read the Bible, but I don't. Well, get active and start reading. <clears throat> well, I know I need to pray, but I don't. Well, get active and start praying. This is what happens to Mordecai, and this is what God wants to happen to us as well. So Mordecai makes progress, but then look at verse 4, and you'll see that Esther starts to make progress. Verse 4 says, when Esther's young women... And her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply <coughs> distressed. That is, Haman had decided to commit genocidal holocaust among the Jews. Esther, however, is in the palace and has no idea what's going on. So word comes to Esther that her cousin will be killed as well as her people. She is faced with a crisis. And this crisis will become an opportunity. Did you know that most of the time, our spiritual progress is made during seasons of crisis? That opportunities for spiritual growth are often during the hardest, most desperate seasons of our lives. And verse 4 continues by telling us that she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak. How'd you like to have that name? Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs. Sorry if your name is Hathak, apparently. No one laughed at that. 
who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. At this point in the book, Esther has also been passive. She has not been active. She has been silent. She has not been speaking. Others have made decisions for her. She has not made decisions for herself. Really, by the time we get to chapter 4, we've not seen any spiritual progress in her. There's, there's no indication that she has prayed or that she's read scripture or that she's worshiped with God's people. Mordecai has taken these steps of faith and, and now he's encouraging Esther. Esther, we got to do something. Let's get going. Let's make some progress in this, what's happening before us today. And verse 10 tells us that then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, this is Esther speaking, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. A month has passed that Esther is not but in the presence of her husband, I don't think she's complaining about that. Any women complaining? That's a different sermon from another time. But Esther, what Esther is saying here is, I want to do something, but what I want to do is dangerous. This is the essence of faith. At times, faith involves action in the face of opposition. The king had a rule. You're only allowed to see him if he invites you. Verse 12 tells us that they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply. This would have been so much easier had they had cell phones to text this back and forth instead of messengers back and forth. But Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Go back to Esther and say, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, that I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. At this point in the narrative, what you have just witnessed and read is Esther is embracing faith. Esther has faith, and faith is action. You see, when people meet the God of the Bible, and when they have a true encounter with the God of the Bible, they change. 
Esther changes. Mordecai changes. They're not perfect people, but they're making progress. And you know what we call imperfect people who are trying to make progress and following God? We call them followers of God. You cannot meet God and not change. Yeah, you may have seasons of rebellion. You may have a season of backsliding, but ultimately God's people make progress. The people in this narrative who don't make progress are Haman and Erxes. They're the same at the end of Esther as they were at the beginning. That's how it is with people who don't know God. They don't change. But people who follow God, we may hit a snag or two, but we're in a process of changing. In fact, I want to show you a couple of statements that are made in verse 14 and in verse 16 that these are what I call statements of faith or they're statements of progress where we can see that these people are making progress, that Mordecai and Esther are making progress. For example, Mordecai in chapter 4 and verse 14, Mordecai says, for if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. (laughs) Mordecai says, you know what? I don't know how we're going to get out of this mess. I don't know how we're going to be saved. I don't know how we're going to be spared. But I do know that if you don't do something, help is going to come from somewhere else. There's a lot I don't know, but what I do know is that God is faithful. What I do know is that God's going to come through. (laughs) You see, God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. And if you hear me this morning, if you are a child of God, if you are not at this moment walking with God, God is still walking with you. You hear me? You may not be following God closely, but God is still walking with you. You may have walked far away from God, but if you will turn around today in repentance, you will find that God is not far off removed. You will find that God is right there. Mordecai is in a dire, difficult, distressing circumstance, but God is with him. That is why our hope is not that we'll find principles to fix our life and that everything will be swell and that we can find the champion within us and that everybody can be an Esther. That's not our hope. Our hope today is that God is with us. Our hope today is that God will never leave us. Our hope is that God has not forsaken us, that God will not betray us, that God will never abandon us, that God is not a father who walks out on his children. And Mordecai's statement of faith indicates that he's made a big step in his progress in believing something to be true about God. But he he also makes another statement of faith in verse 14. (coughs) He says, and who knows whether You have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Mordecai here is pointing to something that we call the providence of God. Mordecai is saying, even though we're not in the place we're supposed to be, let's assume that God's not abandoned us. What a wonderful assumption for you and me to have this morning. 
regardless of the place we're in, regardless of what's happening around us, let's assume that God has not left us. Let's assume that we're still part of God's plan. Let's assume that God might use us. In the providence of God, Esther, maybe you being queen is the key to this whole crisis. You see, God's providence is not fatalism where you believe that every single thing that happens in life is just as God wants. That's not true. There's this thing called sin. You know what that is? Liar. Yes, you do know what that is. <laughs> that thing called sin, that's when we do things that God doesn't want us to do. Or we don't do things that God wants us to do. That thing called sin messes up our lives. That thing called sin Messes up our ability to follow God. So providence is not fatalism where you're thinking every single thing that happens must be what God wants to happen. Providence is this. Despite all the sin, God is still in control and he's still good. And Mordecai has come to a point where he believes this. He believes that God is still good, that God has a plan, that God has not given up on his people. Mordecai's statement here hints at the truth that God is both sovereign and he is good. So Mordecai makes some statements that show us he's progressed in faith, but then Esther makes a statement that shows us she's taken a big step in faith. She says in verse 16, then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther is saying, my greatest treasure is God. And if I am willing to lose my life, it is because no one can take away from me my greatest treasure. If your, listen, if your life is your greatest treasure, all people have to do to control you is threaten you. If your life is your greatest treasure, once God becomes your greatest treasure, people can't threaten you because you're free. Esther is free. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. I just want to do what is right. But you see, this <coughs> narrative for Esther longs for Jesus. Because this is a little story, one chapter, <clears throat> that's part of a really big story. Because later in the book of Esther, millions of people are going to be saved, but that's not an ultimate salvation. Jesus will save people not just from Xerxes or Haman. He will save people from Satan and not just from death. He will save people from the wrath of God. See, Esther is a picture to us of Jesus. Esther is a shadow to us of Jesus. Esther, this woman who is making these steps of progress, she is pointing us to a great mediator who will do something great greater than she or anyone else could ever do. 
You see, there's a conflict in this text that exists between a Persian kingdom and the people of God. And a death sentence has been decreed for the people of God. What God's people need in the book of Esther is a mediator. However, no one has access to the king. Only the one toward whom he tips his scepter can come into his presence. No one has access to this king. No one has a right to come before him except for one person, Esther. For you see, Esther is the only, watch, watch, watch. She's the only possible mediator because she is both Persian royalty and she's a Jew, one of God's people. She's the only one who can dare demand an audience before the king. She's both, and as both, she can reconcile the Persian Empire and the people of God. And what Esther says is this. She says, if I have to die to save my people, that's what I'm going to do. Does that sound familiar? If I have to, if death is what it takes to save my people, then if I perish, I perish. But you see, our problem is much worse than the problem that the Jews faced in the book of Esther. They were under the judgment of a maniac named Haman, but we are under the judgment of God. Haman judged wrongly, but God judges righteously. We are all under a death sentence because of sin and rebellion. We have not bowed down to God in worship and in honor and in obedience. We have rebelled against him instead, and the cost of that sin, the wages of that sin is death. We need a mediator because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves and we have no right to access the throne of God in and of ourselves. And so God got up off his throne and he came down to us as the man, Jesus Christ, and he lived a life without sin. Jesus said, if I perish, I perish. And he perished. He died for my sins and for yours in my place and in your place. And he reconciles man to God because he is God who has become a man. Jesus being fully man and being fully God is the only one who's able to reconcile God to men and men to God. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. And it's not a pastor of a Baptist church or the priest of a Catholic church. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Just as there was only one mediator for the Jews, so there is only one mediator for us. The bridge the, that, that bridges the conflict between us and God is 
God became a man to mediate and reconcile God to men and men to God. Our hope today is not in Esther or in Mordecai. Our hope is in Jesus. And he is a better mediator. Esther had to come to King Xerxes on his throne. King Jesus got off his throne and did not demand us come to him, but he came to us. Esther had one shot. She had one moment of access to King Xerxes. Jesus gives us constant access to his throne of grace. Mordecai was trusting that salvation would come from another place. Jesus, our great God and Savior, came down from another place. Esther served as a mediator between her people and Xerxes. Jesus serves as a mediator between his God and God's people. Esther was willing to die for her people. Jesus actually died for his people. And that is why today we can boldly say that Jesus is a better mediator. But here's the thing about Jesus being the mediator. He stands at the table right now ready to mediate the relationship. The Father stands ready to mediate the relationship and to have things reconciled. The only missing party at the table is us. If there's never been a time in your life when your broken relationship with God was mended, God has done everything possible to make that happen. He's just waiting for you to come, for you to trust in Jesus, for you to put your faith in this perfect life of Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins. If you've never done that, my question to you this morning is, why in the world not? The greatest tragedy of all tragedies is that of all the people in hell, not a single one had to go because the mediator has made it possible. If you don't have a relationship with him, right where you are, would you simply cry out to him? And in your cry to him that we call prayer, would you confess your sin? And would you place your trust in Jesus? There are no magic words to say. There's no magic formula to follow other than crying out to that God and as best as you know how, confessing your sin, repenting of it, asking God to change your heart and trusting in what Jesus has done for you. Maybe you've made that decision a long time ago and Jesus has mediated that relationship and you are now reconciled to God. May I ask you, would you please live like it? Would you live in that reconciliation? Romans 8, 1, there is there, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What this world needs to see are God's people living as God intended them to live, free from sin 
and full of the Holy Spirit, being the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Would you make a commitment today to be the hands and feet of Jesus? I'm going to pray. After I pray, this altar will be open. It's open for you to come and pray if you'd like. You can pray right there in your pew. If you've got questions about what it means to follow Jesus or to have this relationship restored, we would be glad to get you to talk with someone. If you have questions, you can come and say, Pastor, I need to talk to somebody. We'll, we'll get someone to talk to you. Whatever God's placing upon your heart to do today, all that I will ever ask of you is that you put your yes on the table to whatever God is calling you to do. Father, I thank you that Jesus is our great mediator. That he makes it possible for us to have a relationship with you today. I pray if there's one in this room today that doesn't have that relationship, that they would realize that the blood of Jesus was spilled for them so that they could call you Father and call Jesus Lord. I pray for those of us in this room who have made that decision that we would live from our relationship with Jesus. That we would truly be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world today. Whatever you're placing on our hearts to do today, Father, help us to simply say yes in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's...